Well, for 40 years, I put off preaching on the most difficult book in the Bible. But uh, 2023 being the last full year of my ministry here, I'm, uh, we're going through it together. And uh, we are in chapter 11, as Mike mentioned. And we'll be uh, going right through to the end, hopefully corresponding with the end of the year. Uh, we went through the seven seals, and now we are going through the seven trumpets. And we're paused between the sixth and seventh trumpets, anticipating that final trumpet in the process, which is coming next week. And in this in-between space, between six, the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, we're given two visions. One, which we covered two weeks ago, of an angel with a little scroll. And the second vision was of two witnesses. Now we started the witness, the two witness version, vision last week, and today we're going to finish it up. The first part, which we covered last week, introduced us to these two witnesses, which we said represented God's witnessing church during this age, this age referred to as 1260 days or 42 months, an age in which the wicked world would seem to dominate and afflict God's people. But the witnessing people of God still faithfully proclaim his message because they are protected and empowered by God. The second part, which we look at today, talks about what happens at the end of this age to these two witnesses, to the witnessing church, just before the seventh trumpet sounds. I'm going to read the entire section of this vision, 1 through 13, but it is only the second part that I'm going to preach on this morning. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now I'm going to read the part we're going to focus on this morning, 7 to 13. And when they have finished their testimony, that is, when these two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. 
And their dead bodies will lie in the street of their great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So let's walk through this passage and see what is going on here. So it begins with the the ending of the testimony of the two witnesses. It says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Well, let's take that apart. First of all, when they finish their testimony. We see here what we've seen before. That at some point in this age, at the end of this age, the testimony of the two witnesses, the testimony of the church, will come to an end. We saw that that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. And we saw in Revelation 20 that there will be a brief time when Satan will be released, ending the season of gospel proclamation and provoking unprecedented attack upon the church. That's Revelation 27 to 10. There's a new character introduced to us here in verse 7. It's the beast. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Well, we don't really have time this morning to dive deeply into the meaning of the beast, especially since we will need to do that when we come to chapter 13, which mentions the beast 11 times. It's also mentioned 19 more times after that, through the rest of the book. The beast seems not necessarily to be Satan himself, for they are sometimes distinguished, but the beast seems to be an agent of Satan, probably in some sense a human agent, not necessarily a personal one. That is, could be a, a, a corporate uh, human body. Then it tells us that the, the great, it refers to the great city. The great city that 
symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Well, when this was written, Rome was obviously the great city of the world, but I don't think we should be looking for a political explanation of this great city here, which it says is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt and where their Lord was crucified. Obviously, there's lots of symbolism going on here. And not only that, but the great city in verse 8 seems to be in contrast to the holy city in verse 2. The holy city is the new Jerusalem, the church, the heavenly Jerusalem, the people of God. And the great city is the opposite. It's the world, the ungodly, humanity opposed to God. It's referred to often in Revelation. Why is it analogous to Sodom and Egypt? Well, it seems that the point here is that both Sodom and Egypt were places where God's people were persecuted. And so this city is also the place where God's people are persecuted. This world city is also like Jerusalem. It says where the Lord himself was crucified. The ultimate persecution of God's people was the crucifixion of Christ. And so this great city seems to be the persecuting world. Now we're going to go over to verse 9 and 10. It says, talks about the death of the two witnesses and how it will spark a great celebration in the streets of the city. Because finally, those tormenting voices that preach the gospel will be silenced. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, of these two witnesses, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We'll talk more about that later. But verse 11 and 12 now. Tell us what happens at the end of the party, the three and a half day party. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. That is, entered the two witnesses. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So when the people of God appeared to be as good as dead, or actually dead perhaps... The Lord intervened and revived them in a way which reminds us of when God breathed life into the Ezekiel's dead, dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and brought a valley of bones in, into being a large army of life. And it says, great fear fell on those who witnessed this spectacle. Now, I don't think that this fear is a believing fear of repentance. Rather, I think it's the reversal of the rejoicing and celebrating and partying which had been taking place over the death of the witnesses in verse 10. So their dancing will be turned to mourning and terror. It's the kind of fear that the Egyptians had during the ten plagues. 
and the kind of fear that the guards at Christ's tomb experienced in Matthew 28, 1-4 at the resurrection. And it's the kind of fear that perhaps the story that parallels this the most is the story in Daniel 5 of Belshazzar when they were having this great big party feast and uh, then the hand appeared writing on the wall, remember? And it says, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Daniel 5, 6. I think that's the kind of fear that this is talking about. And then verse, in verse 12, God calls his resurrected people to come up. And like Jesus, they ascend to heaven in a cloud. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. This, it seems, is what is referred to as the rapture. When believers who have died in Christ will be raised up to Christ, followed by their brethren who are still alive. It's what's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Some witnesses are martyred, others live on to the end, but they will all be called to meet the Lord in the air on that day and to be with him forever. Thus God's people will be vindicated by their physical resurrection in the end, just as Christ was. At this point in the story, we're told that there was an earthquake. Verse 13, at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. To the God of heaven, I should say. Well, you remember in the last cycle, in the cycle of the seals, just about the same point in the cycle, uh, we read in 6.12... When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon, full moon became like blood. So just as the great earthquake in 612 marked the beginning of the last judgment, so right before the seventh seal, so the great earthquake of 1113 indicates the beginning of the same final judgment just before the seventh trumpet. Remember that we've talked about the cyclical nature of these sevens in Revelation. But what does it mean when it says that the, that the ones who saw it were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven? Well, unfortunately, I don't think it refers to a mass conversion. In the Bible, there is no indication of a giant conversion at the end of history or some kind of last-minute second chance. Yes, they will glorify God, but I think they will do so in the sense of Philippians 2, 10, 11. 
At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, like 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As Michael Wilcox says, this is not the willing worship of love, but the grudging worship of compulsion. So to summarize, as I've said before, the best way to understand eschatology in terms of the study of what's going to happen at the end, what's going to happen in our future, is that the church now is reliving the life of Jesus. Right now, she is witnessing and being persecuted, just as Jesus was during the days of his ministry. But a day will come when the persecution will intensify to the point of looking like total annihilation. But then there will be an earthquake, a great victorious resurrection, and an ascension into heaven. So, what can we take away from this? And one thing I wanted to point out is that even though there are various opinions about the general structure of Revelation, the meaning of Revelation, and many disagreements over the, the specific details, I try to gear all the application to the things that are indisputable. That is, the general uh, the things that are in the passage that, that are not related to our specific interpretation. And I don't do that all, all fully, but I, that's what I always try to do with the application. So first, what are we to make of this disconcerting celebration, this revelry, that uh, we find in this uh, great city when the two witnesses are killed as they lie in the street. Well, in spite of all Jesus does to procure human salvation, people are so determined to live their own way that they not only refuse the offer of the gospel, but they attack the messengers. And when their attacks successfully silence the messengers, they celebrate. Silencing the word of God is paradise for the wicked. It is their ding-dong the witch is dead moment. Moses is dead. We don't have to listen to the law anymore. Elijah is dead. We don't have to listen to God's word anymore. Now we can do whatever we want and not be troubled by conscience or religious morality. We can exploit the earth. We can oppress our enemies. We can indulge our passions. We can do whatever we like doing. Jesus is gone and we don't have to listen to this gospel stuff anymore. Far from mourning, they are dancing in the street where the bodies of the witnesses lie unburied. Their animosity is not based on a misunderstanding. 
The gospel divides. The gospel gives life, but the gospel also kills. It condemns those who refuse it. That's why those who don't want it also hate it. As Paul tells us, though it has the sweet fragrance of life itself for those who have open hearts, for those who don't, the gospel reminds them of their impending doom. That's why those who communicate it are said to have the stench of death to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. No one is impartial when it comes to the gospel. You either love it or you hate it. And when you hate it, you hate those who communicate it. The church's proclamation of the gospel, including the message of judgment, torments those who are not open to it. And when that voice is finally silenced, it means comfort, relief, ecstasy. But the parting doesn't last very long. After all, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. So after three and a half days, the Lord breathes into his two witnesses and they are raised again. And the revelry is reversed. This passage also helps us to remember and appreciate the hard life of witnesses. A pastor is one who says God to his flock. A Christian is one who says God to the world. As we saw in verse 1 to 2, the place of worship is protected, but the place of witness is not protected. Do you know that the word martyr originally meant witness? But it seems that it became so common for witnesses to be killed for their witnessing that the word witness came to mean martyr. Revelation doesn't instruct us about how to witness or what to say, but it does tell us that witnessing is warfare. Not against flesh and blood, but against powers of darkness. And it does tell us that we need to be courageous as witnesses. The witness may be a hero to Christians, but in the world, the witness is usually alone. Often suspect, unwanted, ignored, even abused. When I get up to preach a sermon, by and large, I have a congregation of folks who chose to be there. And our hearts are prepared by songs and scripture readings and prayers. The place is quiet and the people are attentive. But in the world of witnessing, things are very different. Many do not want what we have to offer. 
And just revealing the fact that you're a Christian runs the risk of ruining their positive attitude towards you as a person and forever putting a chip on their shoulder toward you. Being a witness is dangerous business. You often get trampled. In fact, if it weren't for three things, no one would want to be a witness. First, the fields are white unto harvest. There are those the Lord has chosen and they're ready to be brought to life by a word. All is needed is to plant the seed of God's word and they come to life. Second of all, God has called us to do it. And thirdly, the Lord has promised that he is with us in it, working with us, and he is all-powerful. Passages like this also ought to provoke us to search our own hearts and lives. It's easy for us to moan and groan about how hard it is for Christians today. We ought to keep in mind that though this may not be the easiest of times, it's certainly not the hardest of times. And probably right now we're closer to the easiest of times than we are to the hardest of times. In other words, we should be thankful for the many blessings God has given his church in our day, though clearly the church is far from perfect, and for the freedom that we have to preach the gospel, and for the abundance of blessing we enjoy in this world. There are places in the world today where there are no upper-class or middle-class Christians, not because only poor people convert to Christ, but because being a Christian involves financial persecution. There are places where becoming a Christian means accepting a life of poverty. And that could happen to us, but it's not at the moment in very great measure anyway. Our relationship with this world is destined to fail. In the end, they will turn on us with such cruelty and hatred that the more miserable we are, the more gleeful they'll be. This is not just the way it will be at the end. For many, it is this way right now. We must learn to be content then in all circumstances, to stand firm both in times of flourishing and revival and in times of severe testing when many fall away. Many who claim to be Christians are actually just pleasers who happen to live in a Christian environment. They get their identity and sense of security from being accepted and proved by the people around them. And since they live in the context of Christians, they live to be accepted and approved by the Christians around them. So they live as Christians, not because they actually love Jesus in their hearts, but because it gives them the approval of the people around them. But when this time comes, when being a Christian means being hated and rejected and ridiculed and humiliated, their faith will vanish. 
We must choose God over man. If people-pleasing is our number one goal, how can we think of ourselves as true Christians? We're supposed to be peacemakers. We're supposed to live at peace with others as best we can. But we're not supposed to be peace expectors. We're supposed to expect to be hated. Not because we're obnoxious, not because we're hard to get along with, woe to us if those are the reasons why we're hated, but because we have the aroma of Christ, which to the world is the stench of death. And finally, what kind of message is this that it's worth dying for? This message that the two witnesses are bringing and they die for. What did it tell us about this message? Jesus told us that his road would be hard and narrow. And we see it here in this passage. You know, there's a, a, a game, a verbal game that uh, people play, especially young people. Um, that It's like... How much would you take to do this? How much would you take to drink this whole thing of juice or this whole thing? Uh, how much would you take to, to jump from here to there or to whatever? You know, sometimes the most foolish things in the world are attempted with this kind of thing, this kind of game. But we might ask that question at this point. You know, how much would you take would it take for you to be killed and for your body to be left to be unburied on the street for three and a half days while people rejoice over your death and make merry and exchange presents with each other because your testimony has been such a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And yet, astonishingly, people keep signing up for this. Down through history, there's been a stream of people who witness for Jesus and lose their lives because of it. If this life is what you're living for, of course, this looks just crazy. But in the economy of God, it's actually the deal of a lifetime. Because everybody dies, but only a few find the real treasure of life the eternal treasure of Christ and the eternal life that he gives. So who really is in danger? It looks like the Lord's people are the victims and those who seek to harm them are the dangerous ones. But in a sense, the opposite is true. The ones who are truly in danger are the ones who seek to harm the Lord's people. And the thing which is really dangerous is the message that comes out of their mouths. The gospel message. The wicked may get their three and a half days of partying, but they spend eternity in torment. The witnessing believers undergo their three and a half days of abuse, though even in that the Lord is with them, but then they spend eternity with him in paradise.
It's actually a no-brainer. Let us pray. We thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you for even passages like this, which sort of uh, shock us and uh, grip us. And they don't, they don't speak in the same kind of polite way that we speak to each other. But Lord, we thank you that you use passages like this to shake us and wake us up. We pray that it would have that effect upon us today. That you would use it, O oh Lord, to shake us up. And that you would open our eyes. And that you would draw us to yourself. And that you would help us to come fl fleeing into the arms of Jesus. Who came into this world to save sinners. And now, Lord, as we come to the table we thank you that we can partake as your people of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus and take for ourselves into our own being the greatest gift that's ever been given and we pray dear Lord that you would give us eyes to see the enormity and the profundity of what we're doing here and that you would use it in our hearts to renew us and refresh us in Jesus. We pray this in his name.